You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. Hello, Beyond the Studio listeners. We are back today with a special episode. Nicole and I are so excited that we got a chance to record this while we are technically on our little podcasting break, which is still in effect. We're still on our summer vacation, even though we're working on the weekend in the summer anyways. But yeah, in case you missed a couple episodes ago, I mean, it's not a full episode, but I announced that Nicole and I are taking a brief summer break. Um because Nicole has a lot going on with her studio practice, and I have a lot going on with my studio practice and life. Um, So we just wanted to touch base a little bit before hopping into today's conversation. Yeah, we wanted to uh, move ahead with releasing and recording this episode with Patty Johnson, founder of Nedverk, uh, which I think you're really going to enjoy because we've been trying to coordinate this for a while, and we were so excited to finally sit down and talk with Patty right before they're about to open up the membership uh, or enrollment for her membership program, Nedverk, which Um, I forgot to mention this during our conversation with her, but I was actually a part of for a few months last year and found it really beneficial. So we'll talk a little bit more about this at the very end of our call, but membership to Network is open for the next week or through this Sunday, July 23rd, if you're listening as soon as this episode comes out. Um, So you can join on their website which is workshop.art, which is V-V-R-K-Shop, S-H-O-P, dot art, A-R-T. And if you use the coupon code BEYOND20, that's all caps BEYOND20, you'll get $20 off your first month. This uh, episode was a really great chance, though, to talk about some of the internalized beliefs and mindsets that um, can hold artists back in their careers that are really truly a result of a lot of these structural or systemic challenges that artists face. So we had, I felt like, a really great conversation um, about what some of these things are and what Patty's observed in working with many, many artists through Network. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. And we'll see you back again here in the fall. We'll be back. We're so excited to share this episode with you. 
And when we return, Nicole and I can catch you up on what you missed in our work and lives during the summer. But if you're also interested in following along, Nicole and I are both sharing what we're doing on our own personal social medias. So you can follow us and we'll share the links in our show notes. And on for today's episode. On for? Now for? Now for today's episode. Onwards. (laughs) Onwards and upwards. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back. We are super excited to be talking with Patty Johnson, arts writer, educator, and founder of Medverk, which is so fun to say. Also host of the podcast Art Problems. And we are so excited for our conversation because A, we've been wanting to have Patty on the podcast for some time. And B, there is such an alignment between the work that Patty is doing and the mission of Beyond the Studio, I feel, to just bring more transparency and accessibility to the art world, uh, to have really constructive conversations around the realities of making a living as an artist and how artists are supporting their artistic practice. So all that to say, we are really excited to be talking with Patty. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the warm introduction, Nicole. Amanda, great to see you. Great to see you. (laughs) I'm really glad that we are doing this now, though, because um, we were just talking before we hit record about one of the recent episodes you had shared on your podcast, Art Problems, about the stigma surrounding artists having day jobs, which sort of led us to the idea for today's conversation, talking about the various ways that artists are actually supporting their work and making a living, and the internalized beliefs that can result from the many systemic challenges artists face that actually hold them back in their careers. So I don't know if you want to talk about that episode at all, Patty, um, as a way to kick us off here. Sure. So that episode, I don't remember the exact title, but it might have been something about destroying the myth of the uh, artist day job. But I think that the, the big issue that I wanted to challenge and address in that particular episode was the stigma that is attached to artists who have day jobs. In other words, their full-time job is not being in the studio. Their full-time job, that is not the thing that brings in the money that pays their rent, but it's something else. And sometimes that work may be related to what they're doing. And sometimes that work is unrelated entirely to their practice. And the problem with the stigma around artist day jobs is that I th- I think it, first of all, it negates really the lives of the vast majority of artists. Most of us have to have day jobs. That is the reality. And it also, and I think uh, Catherine Haggerty, who was one of two guests on the show, creates too tight of a correlation between the amount of time spent in the studio and the worth of the practice itself. I mean, of course, if you can spend more time in the studio, you're going to be able to solve certain problems, but it doesn't mean that you can't be making significant work in the studio. And I guess I'm like, (laughs) this is a very long way of of answering the problem, (laughs) the problem that I was trying to address. But in that particular episode, 
what I did with Catherine and Macon Reed was really try to go through all of the kind of myths that spun out from that one kind of misperception, because it's, you know, it's, it's maybe like at the top of the heap of like just crap that I think artists have to deal with when there are, when there are these kinds of misper misperceptions about what legitimizes an artist's career. And the fact is, is that as an artist, you're the only one who really has say over how you feel about what you're doing. Yeah, I, I definitely want to encourage listeners to go listen to that episode, because I don't want to just like reiterate it again here. Um, but there was such a lovely conversation around language, the way that we describe how we work, Wait, the ways that we value our work, um, what it means to be a quote unquote full time artist, what an art quote unquote career looks like, um, what our art jobs are, and how, yeah, the way that our time, you know, whether we're spending, you know, a few hours in the the fringe of our days, you know, contributing to our art practice, or if we're able to spend, you know, our entire, you know, non sleeping eating survival time on our art practice, it doesn't make it more or less valuable, but we often feel that way. And we'll link to the episode as well. Um, and I encourage listeners to, to go down the, the list of incredibly generous episodes that Patty's put together. Yeah, so that was really the crux of that particular, uh, that, that particular um, podcast. And I think um, you all had some questions. I don't know if it was related specific to specifically to that podcast or um, things that had spun out for you as a result? Yeah, I think um, what that podcast episode sort of like had us thinking about were just the various ways that artists support their artistic practice, um, whether financially or just through an investment of time and all of the kind of misperceptions surrounding that. Um, like you were pointing out, Patty, just the reality that so many artists do hold different types of jobs or even have parallel career paths that are supporting their ability to spend time in the studio and that being so much more common than maybe we recognize or just I, I find it so interesting that you know these things can be so loaded or filled with feelings of of you know shame or discomfort when um, in actuality you know most artists fall into that category so I guess it sort of like had us thinking more broadly about the way that artistic production is supported and even within I would say that um, that category of quote unquote, full-time artists, which I'm, I feel like we're putting it in quotations now because that was a big point of discussion in the episode itself, just the implications of using that kind of um, term to talk about, you know, the amount of time spent in the studio or, you know, whether you're um, being entirely supported financially through your artistic production. But um, we've interviewed many artists who I feel would fall into that category on Beyond the Studio. And Amanda and I ourselves are fortunate enough to be able to dedicate our, you know, our lives, careers, uh, whatever, to the to furthering our artistic practice. But I would say that um, still within that, the majority of our time is not necessarily spent in the studio actually making the work you know you're essentially running a small business and so we have a lot of different income streams within that and a lot of time spent towards the administrative and the communications and you know i think the idea that 
being a full-time artist or, you know, having your work financially support you equating to um, even the majority of your time being spent in the studio is, is another misconception. And so I think it just had a sort of thinking about um, more generally, like some of the other like myths, misconceptions that artists might hold that can ultimately do more harm than good because what we really wanted to acknowledge were that there are a lot of systemic challenges that artists face. You know, it's a tough road and I think that can take a toll uh, emotionally on us and so it can lead to a lot of um, internalized belief systems or mindsets that maybe ultimately do more harm than good. So um, I don't know if that's a starting point, Patty, to talking about um, some of the things that you brought up over email, but just kind of curious because you work with so many artists in the capacity um, of helping to unpack some of those and, you know, helping them to move forward. What do you notice or encounter as maybe some of the most common roadblocks? Well, so I, I think to go back to some of the things you were talking about initially um, to do with various revenue streams and something that was sort of touched upon in this last episode, and I think you may have been hinting at, um, but we never dug into that deeply, was something that Catherine Haggerty called art math, which was just sort of uh, adding up how much it costs to really be an artist and uh, like the the cost of like covering your life's expenses. And the thing that, that had sparked, I think, I don't know what the word is, but I got a little irritated because Jerry Saltz had said something on Twitter um, <laughs> maybe like two or three weeks ago that was just like, you know, most like 90% oh, yeah. of all art is overpriced. And the reason that bothered me was because it's not true. And that's a myth that I think really, really harms artists because most artists underprice their work and not just by a little bit, by a ton. Now there are very good reasons for that. For one thing, we don't have this huge developed market. It isn't easy to necessarily, it's, it's not like you have this commodity good where you're like, oh, I make this watch and like the watch costs X amount because it has these various materials or whatever and it takes, it doesn't work like that. Like art is absurd when you think about the way the labor is laid out, right? Like you, you spend this, like just enormous amounts of time making something that is completely idiosyncratic to you. And then you kind of hope that somebody is going to really like it, you know? And now that's an exaggeration of, of the actual industry. But the point here is that it's very expensive to make art. It takes a lot of time. The materials tend to be very expensive because they're high end materials. Uh, there's a lot of fabrication costs involved. There's a lot of real estate costs involved, particularly if you live in a big city. All of these things mean that when you price your painting at $4,000 and, you know, it's 40 by 60, 
you, you know, you're not getting a huge return on your investment. In fact, you're probably losing money and you have to sell a lot of these things at this price that you yourself could not afford and most of your friends could not afford. So it's not like you can go out to your friends and say, hey, I made this great work of art. I know you like it. You, you normally the solution is like, hey, let's do a trade. But like what these things mean is that it can be difficult to also get the affirmation that, hey, I've priced this thing appropriately because there aren't a lot of buyers for that. And the best way to get affirmation like, hey, I priced this appropriately is, is that somebody buys it. And then on top of all this, if you're working with a gallery, they're going to take 50%, which I think is why sometimes I, I think we've seen an increase in people saying, okay, like, I think maybe I can just do this on my own. So I would say the majority of people that join my membership network are looking for gallery representation, but there are many slices of the art industry. And if you don't want somebody to take 50%, you're going to like see what's involved in like hosting your own storefront and figuring out things that way. Which is occurring a whole nother slew of expenses on yourself. That is absolutely true. And I think all of these things, for a very long time, I think the words professional development as they were applied to artists had a stigma attached to them as well. Like the art was supposed to be so good that if you just spent enough time in your studio making it good enough, people would find it. And I see the like, and I, and I get that because like when you're really invested in something, you kind of lose sight of everything else. I think the writing process is not that different. You know, I was, uh, as a full-time writer, I was really dirt poor, <laughs> like so poor all the time. And the reason for that is that a creative process, like you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this thing. It cost me $500. And then like, Two weeks later, you're like, great, I have my $500 and you made $500 for two weeks, right? Like, so that is, it's not dissimilar to an artist. Like, I'm going to work on this drawing for two weeks and you get really into it. And then suddenly you're like, ah, shit, you know, and there's not that kind of turnaround too, you know, like a lot of times, you know, you're not selling work and then you, your question is like, okay, well, how do I store this? And then there's a stigma attached to that because you don't want to have work <laughs> that you have to think about the storage because it's depressing. You know, ideally it's with, with artists or with, with collectors rather. So like there's a lot of ways I think in which the art career reminds us of how small the industry is, like how difficult it is to make a living and if we don't want to be reminded of that, you know, we'll find ways of hiding from that information. We'll make myths up. We'll make stories up to explain why things are the way they are. And on the one hand, I think, you know, sometimes these myths come out of caring. You know, we care a lot about this. and We want to be able to do it. And so we tell ourselves the stories that we need to yeah, tell Yeah, it's like ourselves. a form of self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, like that stuff catches up with us too. 
And I think mid-career yeah. is when it starts to catch up to you, you know, because you've got a bunch, like at that point, you've got a bunch of these narratives and you, these things that you've internalized. Um, so there are a lot of things to be dealing with in mid-career that I think are, in a lot of ways, just do extremely complex and difficult subjects. And it takes a lot. One of the reasons we deal with them in mid-career is because there's like a buildup, but also it takes a while for us to have the kind of emotional readiness and maturity to be able to address these issues. It takes a lot of wisdom, like lived experience. Yeah. Something that you said just a minute ago really stood out to me, which is just that stigma around professional development and professional practices in general, which is so foundational, I feel, to sort of building a life or a career, if you will, in the arts. And yet it is one of those things that becomes sort of that like misconception or expectation that you're, again, going to be spending all this time in the studio and eventually get discovered or that the sort of like you know, that you shouldn't have to be spending all this time on all these other things that seem kind of like superfluous, like marketing or communications or really building up the business end of your practice that's somehow like tainting the work that you're doing or detracting from the time or the work that you're spending in the studio that, you know, you can't have like a critical artistic practice if you're spending all this time thinking about how you're financially supporting the work. I mean, I feel like these are all just manifestations of that kind of a belief that, you know, which is something that honestly I think is inherited, whether it's through the arts education system or just through like generations of, you know, the way the art world has operated um, with trying to sort of keep artists out of that equation or sort of separated from their own markets. And so I feel like um, that's a big one that just kind of stands out to me is just that professional development being sort of like a like a dirty word or like an unwillingness, like a slowness to embrace that as being really integral to building up a successful lifelong career, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, I think that that's a excellent, excellent example of how these types of myths can be very pernicious and hold artists back. Like the idea that your creative practice is somehow lessened by understanding how Instagram works or being good at communicating at, uh, about your work. And I feel like the, the, you know, the knife cuts both ways on communication. Like on the one hand, I see all the time people who do not have their MFAs and feel like they'll never get ahead unless they have one, which my personal opinion is mm-hmm. just uh, a myth perpetuated by MFA programs. <laughs> That I don't think (laughs) it is necessary to have an MFA to create good work or to communicate well about your work. It's very often people, artists who are concerned about the way that they communicate their work and that about their work. and, And they feel like having a couple years in grad school will really help them develop their communication skills. I mean, I went to, I did my MFA and I can tell you what my MFA in painting and sound art, which I no longer do, but I can tell you how much it helped my communication skills. And that was zero. Like the, it, it had 
no impact <laughs> at all. Like the thing that helped me was doing it and teaching myself mm-hmm. online. I was like, I'm entirely, I'm an entirely self-taught writer. And let me tell you, I also started being terrible. I was a terrible writer. My mother is a writer. And I asked her once if she had any idea that I would be good. And she was like, none. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you know, moms are supposed to always be like, oh, my shining star. My mother was not. <laughs> no, right? not always. <laughs> she's, she's telling it like it is. <laughs> yeah. I do want to, uh, like support that thought because I mean Nicole and I neither of us have MFAs and I'll throw in a small personal anecdote uh last year I got asked to be part of like a guest critique for MFA course and I was like I don't have an MFA I feel very underqualified to speak to MFA students they are in fact more educated than I Um, And the teacher who had invited me to be a part of it, she was like, you've been working as an artist for a decade, you certainly have useful information that these students can learn from. And it was a really helpful thing to hear. Maybe I needed that from someone with an MFA that was like, you did fine by not choosing this path. (laughs) And I think that, you know, if an MFA program is for you, it's for you, go for it. But if it's not for you, don't try to force yourself into a box that is not for you. And there was a another thing that had been discussed in your podcast episode that we keep referencing where they were talking about kind of the the way that we use our money and we can either like potentially put ourselves further into debt by financially contributing to an institution that is maybe not that supportive of artists or we can try to put all of our eggs in ourselves and like focus on, you know, pushing our own art practice forward without seeking that external validation while also putting ourselves in further financial strains when like being an artist is a lot of financial strains for for many of us if we're not, you know, privileged enough to to be afforded a a stable living situation or, or, you know, access to all kinds of things that can move a career forward. But yeah, I thought that was such an, an interesting way of putting it. And I was like, man, I wish someone had said that to me in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that you just don't learn in your, like, in undergrad and in grad school. Art, art school really does not teach you about, like, the financial end of things. And I think some of that is changing. There are a lot of programs that are uh, developing that are teaching financial education. But I also think that in some ways it feels real like it's coming really late. Like it's good that that younger people have it, but that they also need it in some ways even more than us. Like the opportunities are fewer for them. The demand on them is greater. And you know, I think on the one hand I don't know if this is exactly a positive, it kind of is, but like the art industry is a lot larger than it used to be. Uh, and the art industry is a lot larger because there's greater difference in income equality. So there's a lot of, there are a lot more very, very rich people than there used to be. So, you know, I don't think, I think most of us as like artists and middle-class creatives would not consider this to be the best thing 
for <laughs> like society in general. But that is, that's, you know, these are things that are impacting the, like all industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it ties back into figuring out pricing our work and, and needing to not underscore it. And there was something that uh, you had said before that reminded me of this quote that I had sent to Nicole, like not too long ago about the passion tax, or the idea of a passion tax that kind of creatives have. Mm. Um, and I can't remember exactly where I, I like took a screenshot and then sent it to Nicole, but then like cropped out the context. So now I don't remember exactly where I found it, but I'll link it if I do. And I think this is in regards to the writer's strike. And they were saying every single craft has been paying the passion tax for generations. This term coined by author and organizational psychologist Adam Grant and backed by scientific research uh, simply states that the more someone is passionate about their work, the more acceptable it is to take advantage of them. In short, loving what we do makes us easier to exploit. And I feel like that is probably a very true experience for many artists. That's really funny because like, I think that it's actually the first I think it was the first podcast I did on art problems. I talked about that uh, structural Mm -hmm. exploitation and I talked about it relative to artists where, you know, because we do things that we love, like the idea is that, oh, well, because you, you do it, you don't need to be paid and you like it. You don't need to be paid for it. I assume it must be like a little bit more complicated than that because a lot of, I'm sure a stockbroker likes there are stockbrokers who like what they do, but it doesn't mean that they're like, okay, and now I don't need to be paid for it because I love it. <laughs> I love stocks so much. I won't get paid for them, but, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but somehow within the arts, that's, that's like a common perspective. Well, and I think that's, you know, that partially has to do with how art is viewed in the U S and Uh, many other places too, where it's not seen as something as important as say the plumbing, you know? Uh, And I think we need to kind of reconsider our opinions about that because yes, the plumbing really affects our quality of life, but tell me a place that is not dramatically improved by having public art in that space, in, in, in public spaces. It's just like you need it in order to, feel better in order to have a happier society, a happier public life. So it's really, I think it's much more crucial than we give it credit for. And so that's part of the problem. Now, what I talked about in the podcast was how this was something that within the art world we've done for years, you know, like decades, like centuries, really just like, oh, okay, you know, you're doing something you love. You don't need to get paid for it or you don't need to get paid that much because this is this thing that's also like, you don't have to do it. We don't need it. But the tech world is such like, if you look at, let's say, Instagram, People use Instagram and it becomes addictive and they do, they use Instagram because we want to connect with people. We have a love for connection and people love that so much. They will do it for free. You know, now things are certainly changing in that respect because tech companies are like, not only do you love it so much that you will do it for free, but now we're going to charge you to do it. Right. So Now there's Instagram verified accounts, which 
I have my Instagram account verified because I was nervous that if I didn't do that, like maybe I could get hacked or something like that. And I actually do get a lot less spam than I used to. Um, mm. But I've never, aside from a blue check mark, I don't, I don't know what else I'm getting for it. As I say, if the if the verified will slow down the sheen bots in my inbox, that alone could be worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it has for me. I don't know what it's like for other people. Um, and Twitter, you know, I mean, it's basically a garbage heap now anyway. But, you know, but that now you have to pay to use that too. And they actually throttle tweets. I mean, my, like, I have, I have like, oh, I had over 50,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm like, glad to just like, let that burn you know, um, because the engagement is garbage over there. And it's just like a bunch of people now that I don't want to talk to. So, and that's the problem with these platforms is that they're very unstable. And the reason that we do things for love, the reason that we want to build community and connection, I think that like that impulse is, just human nature, but these platforms are just very, very unstable. So we have to be kind of careful in terms of where we put all of our resources. Yeah. Well, just to hone in too on um, what you were talking about um, related to the passion tax and how we tend to, you know, take on a lot of, uh, we expose ourselves to exploitation because we, uh, for the love of, you know, what we want to do, I yeah. think there is, it can feel really, radical or really like counterculture to you know assert the the value of your work or to a, a lot of this feels like it has to come from this uh like a really deep conviction or like a sort of self-confidence when you're receiving all this external messaging that the arts are lesser or you know not as important or not as integral to our society so i feel like that's what i am noticing there are you know, again, all of these systemic challenges that artists face, all of this external messaging around the way that art is valued. And so it becomes really, it's difficult and challenging to have to combat that with, there's like an additional like force of will (laughs) that we have to use to sort of like counter those narratives, I think. And so I'm curious, like, what are some of the ways that you see artists navigating through that? Or I guess I'm just interested in like that dynamic between these external challenges and then some of the like internal belief systems that we can, that that artists use or that we can use. Because I also feel like that's been a really like critical turning point at different moments. Um, You know, we've been talking a lot about the way that art is valued both like emotionally but also financially and the way that artists tend to underprice their work and I felt like even personally within my own kind of like artistic journey that that's been one of the biggest hurdles is just really really kind of unpacking the psychology around how I think about the way the work is valued and how I'm willing to price the work and I think you know in terms of growing your income certainly you can add on more try and diversify your income streams, try and um, find higher paying jobs. But I feel like in a lot of ways, the psychological component is one of the bigger turning points, um, just in really uh, sitting with that discomfort around, you know, raising your prices or, you know, something like that, for example. So I'm just curious, because I know you work with um, so many artists in like coaching them through these types of 
internal battles and how do you see artists kind of like yeah so just for reference like the network membership that i run has about 750 to 800 uh, members at any given time and so i do see a lot of those struggles and i think like so there i guess there are couple ways to kind of talk about this because it's i i love this question and i think one of the reasons it's so good is that it's such a big question there's so much to kind of like it's like you just gave me an onion and there are so many layers to unpeel with this so i think like the the first thing that i want to talk about as it pertains to um the psychological challenges and the industry that we are in is I think like just a small, I don't know if I want to call it like a Jedi mind trick or whatever, but so a friend of mine, like a couple weeks ago, I meet with this, I, like art, I, I meet with this like art group, uh, once a month and it's like my favorite thing to do. And they're just in the neighborhood. And one of the members was saying that his wife was telling him that he should set up these affirmations on his phone and they would just send affirmations to him so that he could kind of, you know, get over whatever hurdles he had. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't love that because, you know, I've sort of tried the writing down of affirmations and I wasn't sure if I was choosing the right one. I wasn't sure if it was like, I wasn't sure if it would do anything. And it, in some ways, it felt like I was just putting a piece of paper on top of a pile of shit, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, I'm just like papering uh-huh. over something that's kind of ugly. Um, but Yeah, these aren't like solutions to the systemic challenges we're facing. So I feel like it's important to... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah that, totally. You know, obviously, <laughs> no amount of like psychological self-talk. Right. It's not a yeah. solve, but... <laughs> but so here's what I want to say, though, about that. So his wife was like, you got to do something like super cringy. And he was like, okay, you know, I'd like to make more money, you know? And she was like, that's not cringy enough. And so he was like, okay, I'd like to make a million dollars. And that to him (laughs) felt really cringy. And I think actually a lot of us can like relate to that just being like Mm -hmm. somehow like it feels icky as it relates to a creative process, but fine, you know? And so he got this message pinged to him each day and he just had to say it out loud. And then after a while, he was like, oh, that's not so bad. It didn't feel as bad. And so what I'm, where I'm going with this, though, is that this affirmation didn't necessarily like fix anything, but it made it so that he could think about it. You know, and to me, that is a really powerful thing. Now, the other thing I want to say about this was that this was something that he didn't just come to on his own. His wife helped him and one of like was sort of his partner in this. And one of the things that I always like to talk about is in and this is like why Nefark is called Nefark, but like the importance of having support and friends, the importance of doing collaborative work, the importance of seeing not just what somebody puts on Instagram, which is like, 
oh, hey, I got a show or I got this like win or here I am working in the studio. Isn't it so great? But like, here's how this thing happened. I got this win and like, here are all the things I did to get this opportunity. Here, here is this thing that happened and, and here's how it happened. When you like break down the individual components of things like that and you see also that other people have the same problems as you, you know, you don't feel so alone. And I think that's the big yeah. thing, right? Like if you're in your studio and a lot of that work is very solitary, you know, you can get lonely. And I think that's why it's really important and why artists communities are so important to, to what we do. So, so I think like, so that's like a, a big part of what happens inside network is just like breaking down opportunities, connecting with each other so that we can support each other and share knowledge and things like that. Like, I don't know everything. You know, we just had somebody who secured a faculty position and it's not because I know anything about post-secondary education. It's because we have a lot of people who are very heavily involved in post-secondary education and developed a curriculum around it. And so like, that's always what I felt was the, the power of community is just being able to see that you're not alone, that you're able to share things with other people. You don't like solve the fact that, Hey, we're all, we all don't have enough money. This industry is woefully underfunded. But I also think that when we have enough of a mass, like Netflix is definitely getting to that point where, you know, this, what I can do now is advocate for artists when they are not being paid properly. You know, we, we offered a lot of support to wage, which is the working artists in the greater economy, which establishes baseline fees for artist payment. Uh, we have that inside the curriculum so that people who are negotiating with university galleries are able to uh, know what their baseline fee should be. Wage calls it a floor fee and what a living wage looks like and how to negotiate for these things. Like, and these are things that are really fucking scary. You know, like every, I, and I think, Knowing that you're not alone is, is helpful in that, but it's also helpful to know that some of these things are just straight up not going to be fun. You're going to have a pit in your stomach when you send that email out and you're like, hey, can I, you know, is there any way you offer me a little bit more money for this? And I was that way too. Like now I always yeah. ask for more money, but I never used to. Mm -hmm. um, so you get used to it. But I feel like you're pointing out something that's really, yeah. And it's important to, to note that without that form of community or without sort of being presented with any sort of alternative, then it, it becomes really difficult and really isolating to self-advocate or to rewrite the narratives that yes. we've been holding or to even recognize what those things are. I feel like without that kind of um, like sounding board that comes with being a part of a community of artists that can, you know, give you more examples or more guideposts to look to. 
Um, so I, I love that idea of community being a sort of antidote to some of these structural challenges. And I feel like this is one of the areas that we really align, Patty, um, and just the, the belief that, you know, through having transparent conversations, through being able to pick the brains of fellow artists, through having this kind of sounding board through each other, that we might be able to unpack some of the internalized beliefs that we hold and rewrite some of those narratives or come up with more practical solutions for how we can move forward. And so I feel like, you know, through the podcast, we can have conversations with artists and, you know, share those uh, interviews. But what I do really love about uh, Network is that you're creating that that community component that's really interactive where um, there is this constant flow of ideas or this exchange of, you know, knowledge and information. And I feel like that that like a collective artist brain and being able to learn from one another's experiences is really powerful. And I know that's something that, you know, Amanda and I have really personally benefited from through Beyond the Studio. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about Network and, you know, what you've seen happen through that community, but I feel like that's kind of where our conversation has led us in just talking about all of these, um, all these myths and misconceptions and, you know, how artists can kind of navigate them to move forward. Yeah, sure. So I want to start with a disclaimer that I am completely biased. So when I say that I like when I say, you know, Network is a really extraordinary uh, community, just don't judge me for that. But it really is. And the reason that I think that is that the people inside the community are very generous with each other. And you know, I try to be as generous as I can to every artist that joins. And so, you know, one of the things that like has happened over the past couple of years. So I guess like in as sort of bird's eye view, one of the things we did recently was that I took a look at how much uh, money in grant funding network artists have received over the past two years. And it's actually, it's close to a million dollars. And that, that, yeah, that's like, it's kind of crazy to me that 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 is the case. Now, some of that has uh, comes from some fairly big wins, you know? So uh, Aaron Rothman, for example, this year he won a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship Award. You know, he... uh, makes extraordinary work. He's based in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. He, uh, he, yeah, I've actually been working with his wife, Rebecca Rothman on this um, public art project for oh, Tempe, yeah, Arizona. Of course. And we actually did. So we actually did work with, uh, with, with his wife too, because like he was, he, when he joined Network, he was like, my wife is so knowledgeable about public art. And I was like, Oh, okay. We should have yes. her come in and give a talk, which she did. And then I had her in for our problems because I thought she was really interesting. And so, um, but that actually was for the uh, hyperallergic column that I have by the same name. So with Aaron, we did a lot of, uh, we did some editing back and forth. I think his might've been one of the samples that we used in the uh, panel discussion that we organized where we had a professional grant writer who helps with uh, 
Guggenheim Awards. I, I do the same thing. We also had an artist who had won the year prior come in and talk. And they were just incredible. So we gave feedback on individual applications. And we also had another session that was just like, here's how you determine before any of this happened. Here's how you determine if this is worth time spending on. And the reason we did that is that I didn't want anybody spending time on it who I didn't think would be competitive, you know, because with grants, you can spend, you can waste a lot of time with grants, you know, you like finding the right grant to apply for where you, you check all of these boxes. That is a huge headache and it can take a lot of time. And I think that's why a lot of artists don't do it. So what this was intended to do was to just, it was just intended to say, okay, like we think your work is, you know, at a stage, your career is at a stage where this application will be competitive. And so artists had that information. So they knew how to spend their time. And then when they did spend it, I think applying for a Guggenheim is a really good process to go through when you are ready, because it, you have to produce certain types of narratives and grant uh, statement language that you can use for other applications. So once you have that language, it really becomes, some people are better at the kind of uh, what, what I might call like plug and play of grant writing, where you just write a sort of basic script and then you can rewrite it, make a few tweaks for each application, but it's not such a big ordeal. Um, but that's like, I think that's a good example of how like network worked. And also like we did a lot of this work collaboratively. We did it in a public setting so that I think it's really useful. And we do this all the time. We do a lot of editing in public settings and that can be a little nerve wracking for artists, which I totally get, but I love getting good feedback on my writing because it makes it better. And the artists, the reason we've had a lot of artists be so successful at grants is that the quality of feedback that they get, not just from me, but from other members has, is really, really high. And I try to teach people how to give feedback because there is an art to it. And it's, it's not about uh, saying, you know, this sounds, this, this sounds awful or whatever. Like it's really about giving people enough information so they know what's like how to fix it, you know? So if you, rather than saying like, this doesn't work, it might be easier to say something like, I don't understand this because it makes me think this. Did you mean that? Or, you know, things like that. So that not only is it a, a question of like, you know, what did you mean? But it also like asks, does this thing, what it's communi communicating currently, is there a kernel there? that is correct, right? So you're, you're playing with all of the information. And I think that's something that's really, really important. And that's a lot of the way that network works. It's like super community driven, super collaboratively 
driven. We have now we have like eight mentors on the site. They've been members pretty much since the the beginning and they will give feedback if I can't. And they're like a lot of times they have expertise that I don't have, you know? And that was always for me that was always that's always been the goal of network. It's it's just to be able to have like more something that's like way larger than myself but driven and driven by the values not just of me but the community in general. And I think that that's like I think that's what's what's happened because one of the things that I have noticed about artists is that they're incredibly generous. And that's like sometimes to a fault. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we're trying to do is like, you know, here's here's how we can be generous with each other, but here's also how we hold on to our chips. You know, this is this is how we advocate for ourselves. This is how we advocate for other people. You know, it's not it's not enough for us just to get paid fairly. Other people have to get paid fairly too. Yeah. And I imagine there's such a, I mean, from my own experience, I know I benefit from reading other people's grant proposals just as much as I benefit from people reading mine. And so even just being able to participate in the feedback in that way and just having like, I don't know, it reminds me of the like a rising tide lifts all ships, like as anyone succeeds and learns, everyone also has the potential to succeed and learn. And I know that Again, referencing, I'm all over the place, but referencing back to your podcast episode before that we kept talking about where uh, they talked about, or the conversation also touched on like sort of the personal definition of success and how we really can decide what what is successful to us um, based on, you know, what feels right. I don't know. I just threw that in there, but <laughs> scattered thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, it, no, but it's... It... I mean, Amanda, that I think what you're saying is so important and like, it's actually a sort of a key part of the program. So the first thing that we do when you join the program is that we ask you to set your goals. It doesn't mean that you're going to meet your goals, but it means that you have set them. And one of the things that we have consistently now that we've implemented that is people reporting in mid-year saying like, I set this as a goal and I got it. And that is incredible. And, you know, and I can see mm-hmm. you smiling too, Amanda. And it's great because the thing that the thing about goals, especially in the arts, is they feel elusive. They feel like they're random, that things just plop in your lap. And that's why that's part of the reason you don't need professional development, because there's no way to control what will happen to you. And that that is probably the most pernicious myth of all. Artists have a lot more control than you think. And I think one of the things that can happen is we can focus on things that we don't have control over. And that's natural because like, those are the things Mm -hmm. that are always going to give us anxiety, right? Like what somebody else does, you don't have any control over. So you, you know, you can get obsessed about, well, how am I going to get this gallery to talk to me? How am I going to get like this show that I want? Well, you only have control over what you do. So you can, 
you know, you can research for your practice and build that up. And you're naturally going to build connections around your research process. You can see, you can figure out which galleries you want to show at and figure out who to talk to there. You can go to their openings. You know, a lot more things are happening IRL now. So it's really important to get out there. And so when you set goals, it also means that you have a better sense of what you want and you do feel more in control. One of the things we talk about in the goal setting, which has like several stages to it, but one of the things we talk about is uh, doing something that artists don't like to do. And it almost feels like fruitless in some ways to just set like a revenue goal. It's, it seems crazy because you don't know what's going to come in and what's not. Um, but once you set that, like you at least know that it exists. And there's all sorts of studies that show that once you set this goal, you're a lot more, you have a lot greater chance of reaching it. But the other thing that we do is when you say, it's not just revenue, you know, if you, if you're not driven by that, we, we, you know, I have something where I say, okay, like, you know, set, set a goal that has to do with like tangibly like that will tangibly impact your quality of life. So maybe it's time, you know, maybe it's like, you know, more time with your family or whatever it is, or more time in the studio, like, and you can set that, that goal. And then you kind of have to forget about the goal because the rest of it is in the process, you know, showing up consistently, doing the things that will get you to that goal. That's the stuff that's tedious, you know, that's like, nobody likes to talk about. It is the stuff I teach because that is the stuff that really moves the ball forward for an artist career. So, um, you know, we have spreadsheets for like workflows and things like that. Things that like sound like business ease, but are designed specifically for artists. So, you know, workflow that is specifically connected to like what you will do with a specific gallery, how you prepare for a specific show, like these sorts of things that bring structure and regularity to your practice so that you can show up more regularly and achieve the goals that you've set. So if folks are interested in learning more or um, potentially joining Network and taking um, that community to the next level, where and how would they do that? Yeah, so Network is open from July 18th to uh, July 23rd. So that it closes, we open quarterly and it closes on the Sunday, July 23rd. So if you are interested in joining, you can do so by simply going to my website, workshop.art, that's spelled with two V's. So V is in Victor, V is in Victor, R-K, shop.art. And right on the front page, you're going to see an opportunity to join. And because you are a listener of Beyond the Studio, if you type in the code BEYOND20, there's just a place in the checkout that says uh, coupon code. If you type that in, you'll get a $20 discount. And I want to see you there. I just want to say that because like anybody who is listening to this podcast is a good fit for this membership. 
Like uh, Amanda and Nicole are amazing human beings. That's why you're here. And that is why you will also like Netflix. Aw. <laughs> you're too kind. I mean, that's like, Thanks, but that's it. That's the truth too, though. <laughs> but that is the truth, right? Because this is something that's built on community. And you're part of that community. Yeah, I think we have felt like there. this is just a natural fit. And again, so much of what you talk about on Instagram, on social media, on your podcast and through network, I think is really closely aligned with what we talk about on Beyond the Studio. Yeah. So this, um, un- not surprisingly, has been a really great conversation. And we're so thankful to have had you on. So thank you for coming on and sharing with listeners. And if you are listening to this right away, um, then you can find out more about Network until July 23rd, like Patty said. Um, But uh, you mentioned that you open membership quarterly. So if you're listening to this at a later date, um, keep an eye out and check it out. And yeah, there will be a wait list that you can sign up, uh, sign up for if you're listening after the fact. So definitely just um, check out the website and there will be a way for you to join. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And there's so much information that you're also uh, sharing and giving out for free. So if folks are like, I want another or a little more information, um, you're already putting out so much that uh, can help folks get a good idea of what's going on in network. Yeah, there's a lot of free information on the Instagram account, on the podcast, on the uh, advice column that I run, the blog, but <laughs> there's a lot out there on your podcast. Yes, Patty is generous. <laughs> Patty is sharing. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! Scientific, or scientific? Oh, yeah, she may be fully frozen right now. We'll get her back. Oh, no. I can hear you guys. Sorry. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh. Maybe she'll Hello. hop out and hop back in. That's a full-on loss. Can you hear me? Oh, shoot. <laughs> Final repetition. What does that mean? All right, she said it kicked her out and her screen just says final repetition hmm. hello yes welcome back Hi, Nicole. oh man hi sorry i don't know what happened oh, no, worries. no problem you were saying something really interesting and then suddenly we couldn't hear yeah i felt like anything. i was <laughs> i was trying to segue okay here i'll start over or okay. hopefully okay, we good. got something in the audio and i have my behind the scenes recording anyway so We'll we'll get it somehow. We'll we'll fix it in post.